Matt Horanek's bio is a lengthy one. To unfairly condense it, I could simply say he's a photographer, author, producer, and he recently launched the magazine W.M. Brown. He's somewhat of an Epicurean polymath, cigar lover, wine enthusiast, and arbiter of the timeless barber jacket. The list could certainly go on, but I'd rather let him tell it. We talk about coffee, travel, and everything from 1960s Volkswagen Beetles to modern-day Land Rovers. It was really a thrill to sit down to chat with Matt, someone many may consider to be larger than life. He's always on the go, and he's undeniably become one of the most influential lifestyle figures in today's society as we further ourselves into a digital age while still appreciating the past. This discussion felt like 15 minutes, so I think you'll dig it. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me at your house of uh, all places. It's, uh, a pleasure. I get yeah. to sit in my own kitchen table and have a cup of coffee, and this is a pleasure. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, just getting right into it, um, tell us a little bit about like where you grew up and what that was like. So I grew up in upstate New York. I grew up in Binghamton. Um, I grew up in a big Italian slash Slovak family, but the, the dominating ethnic force was Italian because my mom's Italian. So she's one of 11, is a big extended family, lots of cousins. I have one brother, uh, but it just seemed like it was such an expansive family because of you know just all those cousins around. And sure. it, was, it was a lot of fun growing up there. I loved growing up in Binghamton. Uh, it was sort of like a mini metropolis. You know, IBM was there. It was a kind of a boom town up until, you know, from the Industrial Revolution up until the 90s. And it kind of fell off and as a lot of upstate New York did in terms of economy. But when I grew up there, it was just, um, it was Disneyland. It was, it was just awesome. And it was that perfect balance between an urban environment-ish, right? Small city. And, you know... 10 minutes out of, out of town on your bicycle, you were in the middle of open fields and rivers and streams. And so it was a really nice balance growing up. Right. That's awesome. So what, did, what were your parents doing? So my dad was a sign painter and graphic designer. He hand lettered everything. He was a pinstriper. He, he, he really studied old craft. He was, uh, he got accepted to go to Pratt when came to New York and was like, mm, this isn't for me. Went back and got a job uh, working in a really old school sign shop. And so my dad, um, and then, so my dad kind of sowed his oats there and then launched his own firm. And, um, and then my mom was a beautician. So my mom had a beauty shop in the house of some level of some incarnation for all my entire life. So like, I never went to a barbershop. Like, I didn't even know what a barbershop was. Like my mom had like, you know chair dryers and cosmopolitans and it smelled of like perm and hair dye down you know what i mean but, <laughs> that's awesome but it was you know both of my parents were very kind of independent business people um always kind of working for themselves i mean i remember my dad working for himself more than working at the sign shop but you know and he was really into cars so that's why he kind of studied a lot of that old craft so he you know, he pinstriped and lettered cars. You know, he's got cars in the Ford Museum that he had pinstriped because he was watching all these guys die out, and he loved that sensibility of uh, old craft. So he was painting American cars primarily? Yeah, he was painting, listen, he was painting everything from hot rod dragsters, right? Because Watkins Glen was, we had five mile point speedway. We had a lot of car racing up right. in New York. So he was painting dragsters to fire engines, to custom cars, to restored Model A's. 
because all those Model A's and everything in Model T's, they were all pinstripe by hand in the factory. So, um, and then, you know, hand lettering and gold leaf and all that stuff. I mean, I saw my father passed away quite when, he, when I was quite young and he was quite young, but it was just at that point where vinyl signs were coming in and right. right? And like any new technology, he was really, really into new technology. But the reality now, if he was still around, like he was such an incredible craftsman. And now look at, you know, th that is such a high craft now, right? Oh, sure. So, I mean, hand pinstriping. Hand pinstriping, hand who does that? Gold leafing, show cards. It was amazing. Um, so he was really good at, um, you know, grade school art projects when I was a kid. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what kind of baloney were you using? As a kid, pretending to do your cooking shows, dude, I was old school Oscar Mayer. Like we, you know, it's funny. We had this amazing Italian deli uh, called Mascherelli's, and everything was made in house. Like it was incredible. But like as a kid, you're like, I don't want the homemade mortadella. Like I want like Oscar Mayer, right? Right. <laughs> so we made like my we were surrounded by all this amazing food, and of course, like bratty kids, we wanted everything processed, and that was also the time, right? Uh, but I was definitely angling for Oscar Mayer, and I still love bologna today. I mean, I love bologna with passion. I mean, Did I you do fried. I de I have had fried, and I like fried. But I I really I guess I've gone back in you know basically mortadella's bologna, right? But I would rather eat that than anything that in hot dog. So university? Did you go? to Yeah, I went to school in upstate New York. I went to school in Rochester. Okay. And I, I went and studied photography, art history there. I left for one year, one academic year, and went to school in Salzburg in Austria. There was oh, an yeah. art exchange program there. I actually went to school in the castle stables where they filmed The Sound of Music. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was yeah. a lot of fun. That's insane. So what were some of your first jobs out of school then? Uh, I never really had a job ever. <laughs> okay. I, you know, I think the only... I mean, I remember the two real jobs I had was working at the hospital cafeteria in high school, like where I really had a clock in and then working at this coffee roaster when I was in college. But after that, I just was this kind of freelance grunt. You know, I came to New York and I started assisting photographers, you know, and it, I just wanted to be around photography and magazine making and image making. And, you know, a lot of the alumni were kind of hardcore, you know, big still life shooters when I got to New York. And I didn't, I didn't care if I was cleaning toilets or picking up dry cleaning. I just wanted to be around those image makers. So that's what I did. And I been, a, and that was nineteen, it was nineteen eighty nine, really. So were you, were you shooting Leica even back then? Because you're a big Leica guy. My first Leica, I got in ninety five. Right, I was a big Nikon guy. Right, I love Nikon's. But I really like the idea of the rangefinder. But I couldn't afford them. Like Leicas were... Yeah, they're pricey. <laughs> yeah, they were other level. And I, there was a fly fishing shop that I hung out with called the Urban Angler that's still here. And there's this guy, Steve Fisher, who was uh, John Fisher, who now owns his father. And he had an M2 with a, uh, with a, with a meter, uh, meter prism up top, like a dedicated meter prism. And I was like, oh, I just love that camera, Steve. And he goes... I'll sell it to you. And I was like, well, how much is it? And I just had been kind of assisting and shooting. So I had a little bit of money. He was like, give me 400 bucks. So I bought that body for 400 bucks. I bought a used 50 millimeter 2.8. And that just changed the way I saw the world. Like I fell in love with my wife through that camera. I just had met Yolanda when I started shooting that camera. It slowed everything down and framed everything deliberately. And that's the way I still look at the cameras now. You know, it's like I use those cameras when I'm trying to capture those moments. The cover of the first issue 
uh, of Gerardo in Abruzzo, that whole Abruzzo story, which is a very quiet, intimate photo document. It really is a really intimate documentation of that day was all with the M10. And of course you're talking about WM Brown, the yeah, magazine, um, Brown, which the magazine. we'll get to for sure. Named after the farm. That's right. So talk a little bit about that, that that's been in the family. Well, that farm, so upstate New York, it's in upstate New York. It's in the Catskills. It's an hour from where I grew up Southeast. Right. So, but I lived in New York and I was thinking to myself, what am I doing? Like, where's the, where's the great balance that I used to have, right? Which was fly fishing and wing shooting and being in nature and not being in a rat race and not being piled up on each other and things were quiet. And so, uh, I had always been renting these little houses, um, in the Catskills or out in Montauk looking for escapes. So when we finally had put enough money away, I did what I should have, I, I didn't do what I should have done, which is just buy an apartment. I was in like, New York City. Yeah, that right. would have been the smart financial move. But I knew I needed the mental escape. I needed I needed to be away. So we Yolanda and I bought that property uh almost eighteen years ago. Oh wow. So you're you're the first of the family. It I'm wasn't the, in the family. It was in not in the family. Like right. it was close to where I grew up, but you know, we I we were walking through the West Village, we saw a listing. There was a realtor that had upstate listings. It was the dead of winter. We drove up and looked at it, and I was like, Yolanda, if this looks this good in the winter, it's gonna be magic in the in the in the summer because that's just the way upstate New York is. Like it reveals all its ugliness in the winter, and it was magic. So there wasn't a there wasn't even a house. There was an old mobile home on there and a barn. So we just bought it, and then we lived in an airstream for two seasons until the like hose froze to the water. Until we ended up building that prefabricated house when Yolanda got pregnant, and uh, that was my next question. So it's a prefab house. Yeah. So we built. We it's lived very here. like I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen too many photos of it, but yeah. it's almost like Lake Corbusier. It exactly. Very, that. It's yeah. this Miesian box. It's this modernist expression. It's quite you know, it, it it's kind of amazing because it it blends in perfectly with the landscape. There's no. It's it's magic. It's a magical house. But you know, we we lived in the airstream, and then we were sick of like peeing and crapping outside basically <laughs> and bathing in the pond you were camping we were hardcore camping like, yeah we cooked everything on the weber there was a refrigerator in the barn and a phone but like everything happened in the airstream and then we built this so we built this little cabin which was meant to be a bathhouse and as i was designing it with this local guy up there this carpenter i was like you know what let's just make it a one bedroom little cabin and my because my brother built me a japanese soaking tub and the whole cabin interior was about that tub so i was like you know what let's put a little wall here and then we could put a bed here and and so it became this kind of walled in you know that's awesome yeah so is your brother a woodworker or is my he just an industrial designer my specializes brother. in onsens or no, he is. <laughs> my brother is very very handy and uh he the problem with that tub was it couldn't be filled 24 7 which how that's how japanese tubs work right so the wood swells and they're watertight so he built it and finish it like a vintage surfboard with tons and tons of layers of, um, of surface. So, I mean, it's totally waterproof, right? It's amazing. And then, so then we lived in that cabin seasonally, like actually through the winter and stuff like that. And then Yolanda got pregnant and we were like up there with Clara as a baby in that cabin in the middle of the winter. We just, we were out of our minds. Like it was, and I was still cooking outside in the Weber in the middle of the winter. That's amazing. 
Well, that's so cool. Well, so you're also obviously a coffee guy. You and I both are big fans of Bialetti. Um, yeah, I am. I, I mean, I'm drinking coffee right now. This is probably my third cup just today be, being in front of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. No, I mean, it's interesting. I, I like all forms of coffee. Like, I'm not a snob. Like, I like many methods. Um, I love drip coffee. We have that Mocha Master in the kitchen, which is made by this Dutch company. It's the same design for drip that I think it dates back to late 50s, early 60s. And then, and then I had a really good friend of mine who's Italian uh, who was such a coffee snob. And one time I went, this is years ago, I went to his house in the country and there was an espresso. And I was like, Paul, what the hell are you doing this Nespresso? And he was like, I mean, come on. Like, you're in the country. The coffee isn't fresh. Da, 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 da. So I was like, okay, I have permission now to own this thing. Because I went through. Yeah, if an Italian owns one. Oh, yeah. It's and fair I, game. I mean, I've gone through Pavoni's and I've gone through, uh, I mean, the most complicated espresso systems. And finally, I'm just like, you know what? Nespresso is just fine. Yeah. It's just fine. I, I Honestly, I don't even know that I had had it before I got married a couple of weeks ago. And oh, really? yeah, Congratulations. Oh, thanks. Um, but in our hotel room, there was an espresso. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. All right, fine. Screw it. I'm going to yeah. try it. <laughs> it's Swiss and they've done a great job with it. You know, and what's so good is there's so many varieties and then there's other off brands, um, uh, that will make pods like really nice, bespoke, thoughtful family run coffee place. They still make pods for the Nespresso. So there's a lot of options in it. I don't turn my nose up. It. Uh, it's about convenience and it's about the fastest journey to get what you want. Right. hundred percent. And I've messed up so many uh, espressos before on the Pavoni. My, my good friend, Steve Lewis, who photographed the man in his watch book, he is like the Pavoni master. And you know what? I leave it to him. Right, right. Sure. Sure. Um, so obviously you got your start sort of in photography, that sort of thing from a business perspective. Um, do you only shoot Leica now or are you using other things? No, I think digital, the digital world changed the way there was, there's, there's no one system anymore. Like I own Leica digital cameras. I own the Leica CL, the M10. I, I love those cameras. And, but I also, they're not right for everything. And like the bonefish story that's in the William Brown spring issue, you know, I threw this little Sony 6000 with a interchangeable lens in my fanny pack and shot the whole thing on that. That camera is brilliant. And I didn't have to worry about it, you know, especially with a lot of light, obviously. Right. And I, it, you know, and I didn't, I didn't, that, 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 by the way, that camera works incredibly good in low light situation. It's a very light, nimble system. So um, I go back and forth with Sony's and Leica's. The, the car book was being shot on a Hasselblad. It, you know, it, I I think with with digital now, you got to kind of pick the lane of the camera based on the subject. Sure. Now, is that with partnership with Hasselblad, or, do, or is that you know any there relationship was a there? there was a vague. You know, they were loaning. It's a twelve thousand dollar camera or something. Yeah. So they've been really generous about loaning the camera to me when I need it. They will not give me a camera, unfortunately. Uh, and also Leica as well has been really supportive, and. You know, I organically am huge fans, you know, like it, it's not easy. It's sorry. It's it's not not easy to talk great stuff about those. Yeah, it's, it's kind of the proof is in the pudding. Um, so that took you to Condé Nast Traveler. So I, I, you know, had been navigating the magazine world for 25 years on on some aspect, mostly shooting. Right. And working with GQ, Vanity Fair, all the Condé Nast publications. And um, I left to go work on television. Had a short run on Esquire Network, having a show called Alternate Route. What year was that around? That was uh, 
where are we at now? That was 2014, I think. Oh, so five years ago. Yeah, 14, probably five years ago now, four years ago now. So, um, no, five years ago, because when I, we were waiting for the show to see what was going to happen with the network, if it was going to pick, get picked up. Yolanda, my wife, was the creative director at Condé Nast Traveler, and a really good friend of ours, uh, Pilar Guzman, was the editor-in-chief. They needed somebody to cover the men's market in the watch market, and I, they looked at me, and they were like, well, you're not doing anything. And do you want to cover this part of the business for us? And I said, sure. And that just evolved into, you know, just like more content and more storytelling. And I thought that's when I really shifted gears and was like, you know what? I don't have to photograph everything. I, I like, and there's also 20 guys behind me that could do a great job or not, or a better job. Right. But I thought the, the content creation and the storytelling and the ideas was something I felt I uniquely was good at right. more than the photography end of it. So that opened up doors of, you know, working with friends and who are great photographers. And it was such a terrific relationship that way. That's awesome. But then you were also a contributor towards the rake as well. Yeah. So in, you know, I met Waco early on and they were trying to fill their digital space and looking for travel content. And there was enough residual stuff out there that I started um, writing for those guys and contributing to those guys. And also with Ralph Lauren magazine, like, you know, they're, you know, the digital space is so hungry for a variety of, of content. And that's one thing that, I mean, there's not, there's a lot of things that do not come easy to, for me. Right. Writing is one of them, but store, my head is flooded with ideas, I would say regularly. Well, it seems like you and your wife are very parallel in the work life and yeah. workspace. Um, she's called you a kitchen bully, I understand. <laughs> so well, that comes from a different aspect. I mean, the the kitchen bully article that was in the New York Times, which will go down in history now that you've um, revived <laughs> Kicked it up that, again. everyone will be Googling it. <laughs> no, it, it came out in a very tongue-in-cheek way where, where I was like, I listen, I grew up in an Italian family with amazing cooks. Yolanda didn't. Like, the osmosis of understanding the kitchen is just natural for me. And right. also... I grew up with like pushy Italians. So, you know, I just was like, oh, if you don't know how to chop an onion, like step aside, like I got this, you know, it came out of a very helpful place, but I, I guess I got this reputation of just like being a bully in the kitchen, which I, I've mellowed out. And Yolanda is definitely much better in the kitchen. But in the early days, I was it's sort of that thing where you're like, I, I could do it better. So I'll just do it. Right. You know? Right. Same, but same with laundry. And you're, li and you're living in Brooklyn. We live in Brooklyn. Um, we've been here for about 12 years in this place. No bagels? Uh, there's very good bagels here. They just, um, they're, they're very limited in my diet now. Right, right yeah. You yeah. have to pick a lane, and I'd rather I, drink than eat bagels. Really. I'm, I'm with you 100%, though I did eat a really great bowl of pasta last night. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm heading to Italy tomorrow, so that program will, that agenda will be on the program. Sure. You made mention of A Man and His Watch, the book. How did that start, like conceptually? Like what, why, like what day did you wake up and say, I just really want to make a watch book? Well, the thing is, is I was, I was approached by Artisan, who is the publisher, who do beautiful, beautiful books, mostly cookbooks. And they were trying to figure out a way to do a book in the men's style space or men's space. And I really, you know, there's, there's shotgun shooters and there's snipers. Like I'm more of a shotgun shooter, right? Like I was just kind of, casting this wide net of ideas that wasn't really specific, which isn't very helpful when you want to write a book, right? You need to have tighter ideas. So and when I was covering the watch market for Condé Nast and running across all these kind of amazing characters 
mostly men with great watch stories. I was coming home and I was telling Yolanda about it. And Yolanda, she was like, dummy, like that's your book. That's your content. So I went to Artisan and they turned it down initially. They were like, no, we're not doing a watch book. We've turned this idea out. And I said, well, g- give me a chance here. Like this is not a watch book. It's a storybook. Right. And then Steve and I did a little test on how photographically we wanted to approach it, which was about celebrating the nuance of patina and wear and the, the things that tell the story. They were sold. So as a photographer, how do you manipulate storytelling f- photographically? Like, what did you do differently in the shoots that would articulate that? Well, first of all, I trusted another photographer who's better than me, Stephen Lewis, who's a brilliant, brilliant still life photographer. And we collectively you know, said to each other, this, we have to photograph this in a way that is very straightforward, documentary and and clean, but we want tons of detail. Like I want to see the, the, the ding in the top of, um, Eric repairs Vacheron Constantine. I want to see the, the saltwater damage of a dial. Like that was really important to us. So it was not retouched every, all that stuff was meant to live. And that was a big part of the storytelling. So that, um, that approach deemed pretty successful. But because the publisher approached you, I would imagine the process of actually making the book was seamless. Well, they are incredibly collaborative and smart and enthusiastic. And we had a great love affair with each other. Like, yeah. And they were very receptive to my ideas, even the naive ones. And they were really brilliant in the idea of um, its construction design and marketing. So what was the relationship before you launched the book? Because they came to you, obviously they knew well, you. Well, I had known them socially. And there was a fr- and friends had had books with I them. See. So I had met Leah, who's a brilliant, brilliant publisher. Cool. And we kind of, and she's fun to talk to. And we batted around ideas. And she's really open to it. And um, like when I said storybook, like there was a sparkle in her eye. Sure. And I knew we were onto something. Yeah. The reason I ask is, is a lot of the questioning that I like to ask on the standard age podcast is kind of like advice for others. So like if somebody else wants to not do a watch book per se, but do a book, like what kind of advice would you give them? You know, I think it's about focus single idea of something that you really love. Like, listen, I've been asked to write because now I'm this accidental author. Right. And if I'm not into it, regardless of the money that's being spent, I, I, it's a horrible process for me. Well, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. I'm not a writer. I'm not like a, I'm not a gun for hire, you know, in that way. Like I just wrote the introduction for, uh, this Breitling book that's coming out. That was so much fun. And it actually, I rediscovered a brand that I kind of didn't pay attention to. And I was so delving into that process was so much fun. And writing that introduction was easy because I really liked it. But that is, um, I think that I, that is a lesson for all things. Like you do the thing you love, you, you create the job you want based on what you love, like full stop. Like that is a proven uh, effective recipe. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was alluding to, you know, like if, you, if there's no passion behind it, it's gonna be crap. You know, I think it was Chris Rock who said, like, um, when you have is a difference when you have a job versus a career, sure. right? Like a job is a job. A career is like 24 yeah. seven. You know, Yolanda and I are very much like that. And I think we're really lucky to be doing stuff that we love. I mean, there were times when I was shooting catalogs and, you know, was kind of cranking out all that commercial work and making a lot of money. 
and I was never so unhappy and physically damaged. And I was like, I will never go back to that world. Like, you know, people are like, like, you know, this morning I got off a red eye straight into a meeting, was late to our meeting. And then I'm heading to a meeting at three 30 and you know, it's like, people are like, how do you do it? It's like, I do it because it's fun. Like that hustle is fun. Um, I enjoy it. If I, in, in, I have boundless energy based on that joy, you know? So, yeah, absolutely. And I think most people who love what they do probably experience the same philosophical point of view. I think, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, a lot of people look at me like I'm nuts the way I go from meeting to meeting and, and I drive day trips to LA from San Diego all the time. You're like, you do that in one day. Right. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. And I'm all over the city. I start in downtown and I end up in Santa Monica and up in Malibu. It doesn't matter because it's fun. Yeah. I get to drive my car. What kind of car do you drive? I have a GTI oh, as awesome. my daily and it's a six speed manual, of course, you know, yeah. synonymous with the standard H brand. That's you know, so I, I love the old three pedal way of driving and, um, it's, it's a blast. Yeah. We just bought, um, we were Memorial day. We were driving out from the farm in upstate and, uh, this guy who's, who lives a few miles down the road is just pushing a 1974 super beetle into his front lawn and there's with a for sale sign. Right. And, uh, I like hit the brakes. I was like, go, let's go check this out. My mom had a 63 red and black, uh, red, uh, black with red interior. We took it out for a drive. He named his price. I looked at the girls in the car. My daughter's 16 now. And, and I was like, what are we going to do? And they were like, we're going to buy that car. And we did, we bought it and I'll teach That's Clara how to drive incredible. stick on it. It's yeah. got a little, uh, uh, Hurst, like yeah. gear, little ship. Yeah, that little perfect gearbox. It doesn't yep. have that long zigzag uh, gearbox. It was replaced. It, they kind of rallied it up as much as you could rally up a 1.6 liter engine. Sure. But it's magic. It's magic. And the beautiful thing about those is if the engine craps out, it's like maybe 1600 bucks to replace the engine. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, the funny thing is I have a Porsche as well. I have a 911 Carrera. What year? The 87. Oh, great. It's a, ma it's a magical car. And, uh, I, a friend of the family, like a in-law, has a garage in upstate New York. And I'm like, oh, Tom, can you work on this car for me? The brakes are soft. And I was like, do you understand Porsches? And he was like, Matt, I repaired VW bugs my entire career. Like, the Porsche is the same. It's the same car. <laughs> and, he, you know, he's totally unintimidated. And it's great because his rates are a lot cheaper than going to the Porsche. Oh, mechanic. for sure. Yeah. yeah. $120 an hour or whatever it is. Well, yeah. Maybe more. Uh, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, on the topic of cars, we'll just bounce around. You're a big Land Rover fan, right? I love Land Rovers. Um, what, do you, what do you have? I have an LR4 that's my daily driver, and I've been into LRs ever since they made that car. I have been on I've had, um, I have up at the farm right now on a semi-permanent loan from a friend of mine, from a friend of mine, uh, a, a Series 3. Right, 1973 Series Three. Awesome. It's amazing, but uh, I think that's going away. And now, um, I have a friend in Costa Rica. Uh, sorry, down in Nicaragua. I've gone down to. Uh, sorry, in San Salvador, um, in Central America, and we're going to be bringing some of those vehicles in because there there was a lot of Series Two, Series Threes brought for the coffee industry, and all the mechanics and all the all the means and all the parts and everything are still there. So we've been, we have a couple cars in restoration right now and we're just going to see what it's like bringing them in. They have like 110 Santanas to series twos and it's like, it's the mother load, but it's Central America. It's not easy to navigate. And, but luckily Joe is, you know, Elsa from El Salvador 
So I got an inside track on that. Right. But it's still a slow process, but we'll see how it goes. That sounds super fun though. Yeah. They're That's amazing. awesome. This episode is brought to you by Standard H, standard-h.com. Please go online, join our email list. There you can find our online shop, which is a great way to support the podcast. In addition, please subscribe and rate the podcast. It only takes a couple seconds and really does make a difference. Uh, also, this episode is brought to you by Passion Fine Jewelry, located in Solana Beach, California. Uh, they have a great selection of independent watches by a variety of brands. And, of course, as the name would imply, fine jewelry. Uh, They have a goldsmith in-house if you want to do something custom. And owners Tim and Jana Jackson couldn't be friendlier or more knowledgeable. So definitely hit them up, passionfinejewelry.com, and also on Tim's blog, a wealth of information at independentintime.com. Now back to the discussion with Matt. Um just back on the topic of watches you've been getting a lot of wrist time with your 1016 online i've noticed i love that watch you know the i explored that watch for a long time i didn't really pay attention to it for a while i was a sub guy yeah. 5513 sub guy all day long i poo-pooed the there's two watches that i kind of poo-pooed i poo-pooed the the red sub i was like what do you need a red sub for well of course i bought a red sub and then the 1016 uh i came to the game late because they they're getting very expensive yes and i don't i don't buy watches without selling watches so i had to do a couple chess moves but but that watch i got through crown and caliber in atlanta great and i of course i trust those guys they sourced it well and 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 that's what i i knew i I, I knew I had to find that watch from the right source, a trustworthy source. And um, I saw it and I was like, okay, guys, you hold on to that. Like, I need to make a couple chess moves, but that's my watch. That's right? great. And they were really generous and they did that. And then I sold two watches and bought that watch. You've been to want to buy a watch, I'm sure. In, I, yeah, I love it. I was there Ken. yesterday. Oh, were you really? Yeah. So I remember about six, eight years ago, I saw one that Ken had and I was just like mesmerized by it. Yeah. It was $4,500. That's what they were going for. I know. And I look today now and I'm just like, what was I thinking? Listen, a year ago, there was a root beer GMT sitting in a case of a friend of mine for 4000 bucks, And I was like, ah, it's too much. It's ridiculous. I mean, the market is ridiculous. I mean, I have watches now I'd never be able to afford. Like I was my 5513. I think I paid 1700 bucks for it. My brother and I bought them around the same time. He bought his in a flea market in LA and I bought mine on eBay with the, yeah. And mine has gone tropical since I've owned it. It's just crazy, but it's crazy. Like, right. you know, I never, I never bought watches as investments. I never bought them as like, I'm not a collector. I just like them. So I didn't, if I didn't really fall in, like I never liked Daytonas. I, I ne- they never spoke to me and I've had opportunities to buy Daytonas all day long from, you know, 20 years ago. I was a sub Mariner guy. I also came to the Omega Speedmaster game late. And I love Speedmasters, and I wish I bought a pile of them. Right, you know, <laughs> sure. but that's you can't go through life kind of navigating like that. Um, rightful owner of a Winnie the Pooh watch too. That was my first watch. My my grandmother, when we were growing up on my father's side, Anna. Every Christmas, she just would plop down the Sears catalog, and was like, "Pick out your present." How old were you? I think I was five when I got that five or six and my mom had kept it in her jewelry box on until I was like, do you still have that watch? And she was like, yep, pulled it out. And there it was 
Mine was the, the Mickey Mouse. Yeah, I was a Winnie the Pooh guy. Like, I loved Winnie the Pooh. Like, everything I had had Winnie the Pooh on it. Like, I was, we, I guess probably because Sears marketed so heavily at Disney and Pooh. But I, that, was my, that was my play. So, I don't want to talk too much about them, but you're somewhat of the international ambassador of the Negroni. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you're probably ad nauseum talking no, about No, I, I love talking like, about Negronis. Um, was it, what is it about that drink that appeals to you? I, first of all, I think it's a very adult drink. Sure. Right? I agree with that. Yeah. I also like how it like brings me back to the romance of this kind of Italian aperitivo. And like, you know, I have a deep love affair with Italy. And um, this is the kind of personification of that experience in a glass that you can, you know, that could be happen here in Brooklyn or could happen upstate or anywhere in the world. Right. But I love the drink. I think the combination of bitter and the, with gin and the, and the kind of sweet touch of vermouth over a big chunk of ice and orange is like, it's just a flawless drink. I mean, they, they do go like, I've had bad ones, trust me, but it is a consistently just great drink. And, um, I think as my palate, as you get older, your palate leans more towards bitter than sweet. And, it's just, I think it's just a proportionately flawless drink. So what, what, what's the key component to making a good one? I think you stick to one, 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 but I think you use as good as vermouth. Vermouth, I think is the big variable. That's, that's, do you agree? Yeah, Yeah. I would say so. I'm also an old fashioned guy. I love old fashions. I just, I'm not good at making them. I like martinis, gin martinis, and I like Negronis and I like Manhattans. Like those are, that's my three goal too. Or I just take a, you know, thing of Japanese whiskey and put it in a glass and all said and done, right? Yeah. Have you had Nika coffee grain? I, I like the Nika behind you, the Nika front, the barrel strength. Oh, I haven't had that before. That's pretty great. I yeah. haven't had the coffee, but that one is great. And it's a very cool bottle. The coffee on its own is, del- and as a coffee fan, it's delicious. It's great. But making that into an old fashioned, it's, it's really complex and delicious. I think yeah. you should try it. You know, I am so, I'm so lazy when it comes like I well, just get it at a bar yeah that's so many bars have like, these things that's now. the thing is like uh, you know um my friend Morgan Weber who does the the happy hour section of the magazine um I, I'm just fascinated by the complexities of things that he comes up with yeah and uh and I really admire that it's good to, it's sort of like having a friend who has a boat it's always better that your friend has the boat exactly and having a friend that's a bartender like that yeah is great yeah great. totally well that sort of brings us to the magazine obviously um Everybody claims, you know, Prince dying, this and that. Like, what exactly drove you to print? Obviously all, I, talking about W.M. Brown magazine. So with, with William Brown, like, that was a magazine that has been in my head for a really long time. It's a, a magazine that I think spoke to the whole version of myself. Uh, I think there's great print out there, like Rake, Hudinki, Hudinki, like, very, very single-focused. And I knew that I could kind of fill the gaps in between all that. So as I watched kind of legacy publishing kind of disintegrating and imploding, however you want to call it, I just was like, I, we can't let this die. And let's create this thing with a very, very single point of view, unapologetically single point of view. I don't have to be all things for everybody. I just want to be those things for like-minded, in this case, like-minded people, right? Yeah. So I just decided to do it. We just decided to do it. And I, I, know I, I knew I had to produce it. So I just went and paid for it. And we did it. And I called in every pedigree photographer, writer, favor, and kind of built that first issue. And I realized, like, there was all this stuff in my head that needed to get to a place. And that was not a digital space, except maybe Instagram. But 
it was a print publication that was evergreen that you keep you don't recycle it you know and uh it's really resonated um i i think you know in the first editor's letter i said you know we did this hopefully thinking that um you know i'm not alone and i'm not alone which is refreshing i mean i've always been a huge fan of magazines i've subscribed to GQ for my entire life, what yeah. it seems like anyway, Esquire, back in the day with details. I've always been a tactile guy. Yeah. I don't even own an iPad. Yeah. I just, I can't, I don't know what it is. I just can't come to start reading content like Listen, a magazine content with a, on a device. With a magazine, you don't have to plug it in. Right. It doesn't take a You charge. can take it to the pool. It, it, yeah. Get it, it wet. It, it can get wet. It can take yeah. it, spill. Like all that kind of stuff is really important to me. And that was the sort of, that was the approach with William Brown, and then also with Yolanda launching Yolo, which is her, yep, you know, her magazine, which is, and also it was a need to kind of produce the thing we always wanted, you know, like Yolanda was creative director at Connie Nast for five years, and the whole time we were sort of like, wouldn't it be better if it just looked like this, and you didn't have to listen to, you know, other editors and or advertisers, and you just did what you wanted to do, right? Well, that's what we did. Well, it's kind of interesting. Yesterday, I um, I had a conversation with Jake Muser, and we were talking about the same thing, same approach with apparel. It's like you create stuff because you go into stores and you find things. You're like, it'd be cool only if it had this, right. or instead of that notch lapel, it had a peak, or you know what have you. And Jake's a good example of that kind of mashup of style, right? Like he produces something I think is so unique. It kind of nods to the Neapolitan deconstructed ends of things, but you know, also nods to the formal fabrics of English tailoring. And, and to me, that's, you know, that's a great mashup. And he's super talented in creating his own point of view. And people like that point of view. I feel the same way about all kind of niche things, right? Yeah. And with your magazine, if I could put words in your mouth, like for me, I feel like it very much reads like a blog in its concise type of format um, with each feature. Um, but then again, it's also really diverse, but has the refinement of like town and country. Well, you said it better than I could say it, but it, it definitely finds its, its modern inspirations through the digital space. Like this magazine was kind of birthed through kind of an Instagram point of view or a tumble, you know, Tumblr before that, you know, the, the blog was about short, not long form reads just kind of getting the information out there in, in a very and also in a visually straightforward way almost caption like totally captioned i don't want to read long form anything um there are magazines out there for that like that's why i like the economist or i like new yorker like that's what that's for this i think in terms of the men's style space was just about getting the information out there a little bit of storytelling a little inspiration and and maybe in that we fuel your hunt right like I'm not giving you all that information. Like you, you find it. Yeah. yeah. If it really does appeal to you, then yeah. you can take the ball and run with it. Take the ball and run with it. Like I will lead you down the path, but you got to finish it. So was that sort of the goal to sort of give people nuggets as opposed to, I think, you know, at one point my wife was like on the first issue, she said, you can't do a magazine like this. Like you have to have more service. And I was like, I can do whatever the hell I want. Like <laughs> it's my magazine, but she was right. Like, you know, I would I didn't want to come out forward facing really salesy and selling stuff and you know, even though let's be let's face facts, like you can't produce this stuff without support of advertisers quote, right? Sure. But I 
but a lot of I the only complaint I had had that people really vocalized to me when they saw me was like, I want to buy everything in that magazine and I don't know how to do it. You didn't give me the tools. And I'm like, okay, we'll change that. And that's what we did in the second issue. You know, I captioned sources and if it was a vintage piece, who made something like that? Like you can say like, oh, if you don't want to go dig out on M65 in the Salvation Army, you can go to Sid Mashburn who makes one inspired off the original design and it doesn't it's not musty and stinky and it's probably in your right size you know so like i thought it and, and also i want to support all those brands that i really like out there well sure because without them you you wouldn't have the photos i wouldn't have the photos i wouldn't <laughs> and i also wouldn't have the inspiration so like right right, right. like so it's so sid mashburn and you know drakes and jake like all those guys are who this magazine is about and for like that's the most ins inspiring are those men around me like that absolutely so what are the similarities between doing a magazine and say a book where is there any crossover? You have a lot more time on the book. <laughs> the magazine is like idea, 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 idea. And then it's crunch time. And I, you know, and Yolanda and I sit at this table every morning with like her pulling up an Excel sheet. Like she's the, she's the organized one. Okay. And you know, I couldn't do it without that. You know, you really need to be militant because you got to work backwards from your release and your press date like there's a little bit more wiggle room with the books and you have maybe a year two years to get it done you know even quarterly there's a lot of organization that has to happen a lot of what's on the excel sheet those are uh, just the dates the, or... no it's like what's what story plugs into what section who's writing it when is the photos due what kind of art is going to be approached to it you know what's in what's not what needs to get done what, you know it's like yeah sure um, because now we have the magazine formatted in a way where we kind of plug in sections so I could have happy hour and say to Morgan, like, what's our winter drink or what's our fall drink? And, right. you know, that's, um, or like, what's our street style inspiration for this season? So that's making life easier in terms of a formula, but still you got to get that stuff in. What would you say have been the easiest parts of doing either one, the magazine or the book or both? Like what are, what are some I of the think easy, once you establish the idea, it's easy. I think the, I, you know, I, a friend of mine who's been, you know, has been in publishing for a long time. He's like, how is all this content sustainable? The content sustainability is endless for me. Yeah. I was going to say, how, how could it not be? Everything's evolving. And, and I see. Not to I degrade see, what your friend said. No, but, no, no. You know, but I, I mean, for some, like, I'm not good at math, right? <laughs> okay. Like I'm not good at fixing stuff, but I know that I can, that I, can develop and create stories and um, particularly about stuff that I like. And I like a lot of stuff. So that part is easy. Um, distribution and all that stuff is not easy, but you know, it's sort of, you know, the magazines is existing now also as a platform to other things, right? You know, kind of bringing that William Brown, the WM Brown kind of lifestyle to, to the forefront to, to bring it alive, to make it alive. That's, that's, I think, the, the long-term plan for the magazine. So if I'm sort of picking up what you're putting down, you, the hardest part, you would say, is probably the distribution? The hardest part, is like, like anything, is getting something to market. Yeah. It requires lots of endurance. Um, what does that take for a magazine? How do you do it? Well, the first one, we, sit, we sat at this table and mailed out thousands by ourselves, click and ship. I mean, it was like absurd. And only advertising basically through Instagram? Only through Instagram. That's amazing. Which I love. You know, I love that. I love the engagement, right? I love, yes. I like talking to people through Instagram. I like the engagement. I like meeting like-minded people. I think it's incredible. And that's sort of what happened with that. And then, you know, we had, you know, really good support 
um, in terms of I wanted the magazine in retail and the old school iconic bookstores uh, and magazine shops that are in Soho. Those guys were really supportive. So, you know, there was that momentum of that. But I, I would say its biggest marketing tool was Instagram. So these old school bookstores, are they excited to see somebody like so yourself excited. because they're dying for new books to come out, obviously, to keep their doors open? Big shout out to Iconic. Like those guys on Mulberry, Prince, Kenmar, Kaza Magazines on, Eighth, on Hudson. You know, those guys just, their business is magazines. They don't want to see it go away. And they, they love the enthusiasm and the, the, the potential of independent print more so than legacy printing because that's what's fueling all those things now. And they're incredibly supportive and um, they sell a lot of magazines. It's like, yeah. it's a lot of, it's, it's great to be able to walk into a place, see it, pick it up, buy it. Yeah. Well, it seems like you've gotten your way sort of tapped into the apparel market too um, in various ways. But is the magazine market sort of similar to that? Is, is it secretive at all? Because like if, what, for me, when I'm producing my apparel and stuff, like you have to make a lot of phone calls to find the right people to work with. Like, you know, I you had, come from a magazine background, so maybe you had a leg up on some. I mean, I had an idea of how to do it and where I wanted to see it. And um, like I said, I, I wanted the magazine in all these kind of like-minded retail places. Sure. Um, it's, you know, it's a, big, it's a big endurance game, particularly as you expand in worldwide and like the magazines in Hong Kong, Bangkok, you know, right. London, Paris, you know, like, but luckily we had connections through that entire world. I mean, not for nothing, social media was a big part of that. Well, with apparel, there's obviously minimums that need to be met. Is it the same in that kind of we industry? Like, we don't want people to buy like three magazines. Right. It, it's nice to buy. They should buy things in bulk. And, and more, moreover, like now they're buying, you know, they buy a case of magazines has 30 magazines and like they're sold out in two days. Oh, a case so, is 30? Yeah. So now they're buying them by hundreds yeah. because there's the demand, which is nice. It's very humbling and sweet to hear that, you know, that's... Um, that there's a market for it and people are enthusiastically hungry for print publications, sure. you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously you're a big uh, collector of a, a bunch of different things, vintage lighters, obviously. Um, what do you look for in something like that? Okay. So I what, like what the makes hunt. a good vintage I, lighter. I like the hunt. So collecting has come based on that kind of DNA in my head about the hunt, the finding the thing. Right. So for a while that was um, antlers and then it was Scandinavian pottery and then it became vintage Zippos, mostly military ones. And then then it evolved like I love then I would run across these Dunhill lighters, which I think are just so beautiful, great objects. They're romantic, even if you don't smoke, like they're just beautiful objects. So I started like searching those out and finding those out. And um, but it goes in it goes in waves. Right. Like there, I kind of get exhausted where I'm just like, okay, I know already. <laughs> and then you like sell a bunch of them and then you get back up, you know, back up into it. But there was a part of me that always felt like I was not a collector. I was like this archivist. Like I couldn't leave it. If I found something in the wild, I couldn't leave it behind. I had to take it with me or I obsessed thought about it. So there's somewhat of a revolving door then within the collecting of these types of things. Yeah. Like now I'm crazy. I was in Scotland and I'm just crazy. They had the most amazing flasks I ever saw in my life. Like, yeah. And I bought 
every single one I saw. And my wife's like, what are you going to do? I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with these. But like, maybe I'll sell them. I don't know. I don't know. Well, that was my next question is like, you must be a master at storing these things. <laughs> well, we have a 6,000 square foot barn and uh, I have a storage unit here in New York. But um, no, it's like it gets crazy. And then every once in a while we do a big purge. You have to purge or you're, you're a hoarder. Well, speaking of buying, selling, doing that sort of thing, what what is your current take on retail, be it brick and mortar or otherwise? Uh, I love retail. I love walking into a shop and discovering something. I think Google is great for, you know, Googling stuff and shopping online is great for some stuff, like when you need, like, things that you know about. But I like the retail experience. I like the well-curated eye. Like, Larry Schaefer and OK is, like, the perfect example of that. Like, I walk into that shop and I'm like, I didn't even know I needed this brass bottle opener. It's so amazing, you know? <laughs> or you walk into Drake's and you're like, I didn't even know I needed another pocket square. You know, I think that that... Um, that Retail experience to me is very, very important um, in how I kind of kind of research and navigate um, current trends and style and design. And, you know, I don't know how to Google that stuff. Like, I want to be able to, like, have somebody discover and, and show that to me. And that happens through retail. I just wanted to interrupt real quick to let you know this was recorded back in June. All of the products Matt's talking about have already been released, and uh, you can see them on his Instagram. So by all means, check them out. So that sort of brings us to a, a suit you have coming out, right? Yeah, uh, so um, I think you're talking about the Negroni tweed. Yeah. Uh, well, I had this idea to build a portable bar, right? Like I wanted to, uh, like uh, the old Louis Vuitton boxes. Yeah. Like a trunk. Yeah. Right. Sure. And you know, a, a friend of mine was like, Oh my God, you know, I'm working with this manufacturer in Morocco that makes them, makes the boxes for Cartier and makes like for princes, the Prince of Dubai's like hookah trunk. And I was like, Oh, and I was like, well, can we do a Negroni trunk? Right. And she said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I said, well, I don't want to do it in leather. I thought it'd be cool to do it like wrap it in tweed. Right. So I got in touch with uh, Douglas at Fox Brothers, and I told him the idea. I was like, do you have any remnants and I could use? For it? And he's like, remnants? Why don't we mill a Negroni tweed? How fantastic is that? Yeah. So he said, send a couple pictures of Negronis. We'll look at the reds. And they milled a Negroni tweed. So it's this big panel overcheck, right? Window pane, rather, of red and orange. I don't have any here, but... um. It's pretty spectacular. So we're we're cladding the box in that, and then we're I've, oh, so you are making the box. So we're making the box. Okay. The prototype is done. Got it. I'll have the prototype and type in Florence. Baccarat gave us the glasses for it. Uh, Monkey Forty Seven um, was a big supporter, and we we built out like this beautiful little spot for that little three seventy five bottle to stick in there, and um, and then we're gonna make some suits. That's fantastic. And who's gonna make them? Well, Jake is making uh, making one for me right now sure. out of that. Jay Muser uh, and Jay, Christopher Jay, Street. That's right, Jay Muser. And uh, I talked to Sid Mashburn about doing a line. And then the fabric will be available for sale through Fox to bring to your own tailor, you know, or whomever wants to create it. Like, Fox is going to be distributing and selling the, the tweet as Negroni tweet. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Um Fast forwarding, you're working on a man in his car That's as right. a follow up to a man in his watch. Similarities, differences, same, same thing, same exact attack. Bigger beast, obviously. More stories. Um, more pictures, right? Photographically, it's more aggressive, um, but it's storytelling, it's emotional connection, it's the same as the watch. 
that should be out. Hopefully, if I can get it finished by this summer, it'll be out in the fall. Oh, uh, great. Fall, winter. That's sooner than I anticipated. That's awesome. Me too. It's making me scared. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, take your time. I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> so you're leaving for Italy tomorrow. Yeah. Um, what is it about Italy that really keeps you going back other than your heritage, perhaps? Uh, I love the people. I think the landscape, the joie de vie, the, the, the kind of grasp of life. Um, the food is obviously a no-brainer and delicious. And it, it, you know, it's funny when the, when the plane hits the, the tarmac when I'm in Italy, like I just become the best version of myself. Like I love the spirit and energy of the people in the place. And I think France is absolutely magical. I have a house in southwest of France. It just isn't the same. Like I always say the biggest problem with the house in France is that it's not in Italy. <laughs> you know, but I, I mean, I love the European experience. I always looked to the European experience growing up. And I mean, from middle Europe to Scandinavia to the south, you know, I just think that um, I'm, I'm just very happy there when I'm there. So what made you choose France? Oh, we had friends there. There was this great, I love 19th century, like Neapol um, Napoleon III architecture. So there was these beautiful little limestone houses. And we were like, oh, what the hell? Let's yeah. do it. And that what was What part of France ago. is it? It's in Medoc. It's in, near Bordeaux. Okay. So it's in Grand Cru wine. And there's great seafood. And you're 20 minutes from the beach. It's a pretty magical place. It's quite rural and isolated there. Um, but it was a, it's been a really fun project. And I'll be there for the longest time in a long time in July, I'll be there. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Come visit. Well, um, I'd, I'd love to. <laughs> yeah. We'll go drink some wine. Um, anything else you'd want to add or, or promote? Is there anything we haven't covered? <laughs> Man, we covered a lot. Um, listen, I, I, it's been, everyone has been so great and supportive with the magazine. I hope that continues. I hope I continue to inspire and, you know, keep keep the longevity of the magazine through the dialogue that I have on Instagram with people who have opinions and I listen to those opinions and if there's stuff you want to see and we're not covering enough of all that stuff is really good to hear sure like this magazine is for you like this magazine is you know I want to kind of spread the word of all this stuff that that I like that I think is worth talking about and if you're interested in listening to it it's out there and it, and uh, if you want to see lots of Negroni uh, Instagram stories. You can follow me at, at WM Brown project. There you go. All right. Well, listen, man, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time and for the hospitality, obviously as well. We um, only, we only gave you the best filtered water while you were right. there. <laughs> <laughs> Wesley. I really appreciate it, Matt. Okay. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay, cool. Bye. Wanted to thank Matt once again for all of his hospitality there at the house and uh, really taking the time to sit down with me. Um, it was right before he did an interview actually with the Ralph Lauren. Uh, so he was uh, very, very gracious with his time. And uh, Matt, thanks so much again. Uh, next time I'm in the city, let's try to meet up for a Negroni and or espresso. Um, really, really appreciate you taking the time. This was an absolute blast, you guys. Um, Really appreciate you guys listening. Uh, be sure to check out Clear Audio, C-L-E-E-R, audio.com. Uh, really great headphones, noise cancellation capabilities. Uh, of course, this is brought to you by Standard H, as always. Uh, Standard-H.com, where you can find some hats, t-shirts, shorts, uh, and some other things to help support the podcast. Of course, as always, thank you to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for laying down the track. Um, thank you so much guys again for listening really can't do this without you 
Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast. It really helps me out and helps others out to find the podcast. So thanks again for your time and uh, we'll catch you next week. Thanks. Thanks.